Okay, good morning, everybody. Good to see everyone. We haven't uh, been here uh, in a couple of weeks, so let me just uh, begin with prayer. Lord God, we uh, are so grateful to uh, be here at this church this morning, and we thank you for the beautiful weather and the cool Christmas outside and how it makes it feel good, and we're just grateful for your word, Lord, that you've given us. And I pray that uh, this time would be used to lift you up and to glorify you, Lord. I pray that uh, you would use me, Father, to, to accomplish your will. I pray that you would take us deep into your word, Lord, that we would see the truths there. And that we would, be, we would be better for it, Lord, and that we would glorify you in the process. I lift these in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we haven't been here in a couple of weeks. So... I uh, thought that I would just kind of recap uh, for a minute where we've come in this book, Galatians. It's a great book, and it's got a, a major theme in it, and it's legalism. It's the law. Do we, do we as Christians need to be under the law? What, is, what does this book tell us about it? Uh, it's a problem, and that's the way Paul saw it. And in chapter 1, he approached it head on, and he gave us his credentials and uh, very boldly he gave us his credentials and uh, telling us that he was appointed an apostle by, by God himself and there's no higher authority. And uh, then we got into chapter 2 in which uh, he began to substantiate, to vindicate those credentials for us and he told us about uh, you know, meeting with men of reputation, meaning the apostles who were in Jerusalem and that he had gone before them and and they knew his message, and they corrected nothing that he, that he, te- that he taught. And uh, he was teaching, you know, salvation by faith alone and grace alone. There was no uh, further uh, bondage to the law. And we had that. And then in chapter 3, he begins to make his argument about why, why we are under this new covenant. And he, he actually starts out telling us that what we consider old and new is not really chronologically how it went down because uh, the new covenant actually preceded the old. It, the new covenant was prophesied by God in as far back as Galatians 3, excuse me, as far back as Genesis 3. And, uh, and then by way of promise and covenant to Abraham, we had this new covenant given to us. It was then over 400 years later that Moses received the law at Mount Sinai. And we call that the old covenant. But you know, these two covenants never really promised the, th- the same thing when you look at them. They don't promise the same thing. And so in, uh, we were in chapter 4, and he began to tell us all about uh, what God had done by his grace. And uh, he, t- he began to uh, give us the purpose of the law. It's not meaningless, and it is a picture of Christ's, right- uh, Christ's righteousness. And so it has purpose. But he began to let us know that it was, it was to serve as a tutor, to teach us, to bring us to realization of sin and realization of our need in Christ. And he also, toward the end of chapter 4, he began to speak in an allegory. And he took this uh, story of Abraham and of his uh, wives, I'll say, Sarah, the free woman, and, uh, and Hagar, the bondwoman. And by way of allegory, he began, he began to show us things about the old and the new covenants and the children of those, the products of those, the work of the full preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you 
would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, there it is again, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So judging from Paul's words here, he says, if I still preach circumcision, circumcision, why am I persecuted? That implication then is that the false teachers may have tried to convince the Galatians that Paul agreed with their false message of circumcision for believers. But Paul is saying, if this were the case, why do I still suffer persecution for the message I preach? Well, his, his message is the reason. It was salvation by faith through grace alone. You know, looking at his message, really the fact that Paul preached that Jesus was crucified, that was not the problem for these religious Jews. Many people died that way back then, right? No, the reason that Paul incurred the animosity of the Judaizers was because of the significance that he attached to Christ's crucifixion. For the Judaizers, that is from their viewpoint, regardless of Jesus' sacrifice, if the law were still the road to salvation, then the death of Jesus could just be forgotten. It would have just been another Roman execution. And how would that have been an offense to them? But Christ's death was significant. The whole gospel that Paul preached revolved around that one great event. Because in Jesus' death, the law was fulfilled and it was retired. Jesus' crucifixion was not the death of one man only. Listen, legally, it was the termination of Adam's entire race. Remember, in Christ, the law had executed the last, the last Adam. What more could it do? Where now is the law's strength? Why would someone try to keep it as a means of obtaining eternal life? If it could never save the living, how could it resuscitate the dead? The reason Paul was still being persecuted by those Jews was because the gospel he preached retired and replaced the old covenant, the covenant of the law. Now in verse 12 of Galatians 5, when Paul says, I wish that they would even mutilate themselves, um, he was actually suggesting that the Judaizers go beyond simple circumcision and instead, metaphorically, figuratively, whatever, cut themselves off completely. Paul's reasoning was this, that they, the Judaizers, they were in the flesh. Their message was of the flesh. And the circumcision that they preached and promoted related to the flesh. Therefore, their removal then would be a kind of circumcision for the Galatian churches so that the Galatians would enjoy their freedom from the bondage of the law. But they needed to be careful because freedom from the law through God's grace should not, provide, should not be misconstrued to provide an atmosphere to sin or where lawless behavior is excused. Such a low level of grace misses the point of righteousness, which is only by the Spirit. And believers should never assume that the absence of the law means that there is nothing to govern us. God's Spirit leads His household in the paths of righteousness and governs, governs the regenerated soul and spirit. King David knew this in recalling his days as a, a shepherd boy in Psalm 23, wrote, 
speaking of the Lord, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In verses 13 and 14 here of Galatians 5, Paul again turns the focus to love. Because what the law requires and what love provides are diametrically opposed. Think about it. Love endures injustices. It readily forgives. It rushes to assist and serves without asking for service in return. Did that sound like the Mosaic Law to anyone? The love that comes from God truly shifts our focus from the flesh, from our flesh, from self. And we know that this love is supernatural. And it comes from God. Why? Because the whole law is fulfilled by it. And of ourselves, we could never fulfill the law. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, we do not possess that kind of selfless love. Any comments? Galatians 5, verses 15 through 18. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the love, now, of which Paul has been speaking in these previous verses, it was much needed in the Galatian churches. Some people had followed the legalists, but not all of them. Some had remained steadfast. And the choices that they made were being reflected, though, in every relationship. In fact, the atmosphere of the whole church was affected, can be affected. And the resulting conflict was causing the Galatians basically to bite and devour one another. How then would the church be purified? Well, Paul has an answer in these verses. So he deals with being under the laurel, which is here referred to as the flesh, and walking in the Spirit, as if they're two separate people. One is in charge, and the other is subordinate. The believer's victory and behavior are dependent upon which is which. And Paul says that the two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. That's kind of a puzzling statement. And it will always be puzzling until we understand a very basic biblical truth that if one walks in the Spirit, it is impossible to do the things of the flesh. And the corollary is also true. If one walks in the flesh, it is impossible to do the things of the Spirit. Therefore, our behavior, our conduct is not predicated on what we want to do or even what we try to do, but upon whether or not we walk in the Spirit. Please don't think that I'm claiming to have it all together in my life, but let me see if I can just give you a general example here. Usually, as per human nature, we tend to do battle with the things that we want to be rid of. Guilt, things like guilt, our frustrations with how our performance is and all the spiritual baggage that we bring with us from before our salvation. But it seems that the more attention we give to them, the more obstinate that they become. And if we constantly focus on the guilt 
of our past and all the awful sins that we've committed in hopes of somehow spiritually flailing ourselves into the kind of Christian that blesses the Lord, we will constantly fall short. This is something that Paul realized when he was writing the seventh chapter of Romans. Let me just go to verse, verses 21 through 25, Romans chapter 7. Listen to Paul and listen to his heart. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's where the Holy Spirit is indwelling. But I see a different law in the members of my body, referring to his flesh, raging, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So what Paul was discovering in these verses is that we must set our sights on our destination and forget that which is behind us. This is exactly what he, what he tells the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. In other words, I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is that it's futile to try to escape the flesh by applying the law to it. Rather than the law, the Galatians needed to let the Holy Spirit lead them so as to not be under the law and thereby to leave the sin problem behind because Jesus has already dealt with that. And this would free them to be walking in the Spirit, a place where they would not fulfill the, the desire of the flesh. Now, do I understand all this that I'm telling you about right now? Well, my wife is in the room, so you're going to get an honest answer. <laughs> sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But I'd sure like to hear of anybody else's experience. Walking in the flesh, walking in the spirit. Yes, Amy. I feel like it's, it's easy to fall back on law and rules because it's comfortable and you That's right. And then I can just deal with it instead of taking the time to really dig deep and, and go to the Lord. It's that, that relationship and digging in and finding, you know, closing that. It's good. You know, arguably, in Romans 7, when he's saying that, I heard three laws the law of God, the law of sin, and the law of my mind. And, uh, so what are those three things? I, I would tell you that arguably they're the same law. It's just how we perceive it. You know, when the Mosaic law stops being a taskmaster and you begin to see it as the will of God that you want to do, 
it the whole new perspective comes in. And I think that's what we struggle with daily. Any more? Yes, Denise. Isn't there a Very good. Did you have something? Karen? I, I think often of that passage that in Psalms where David says, um, you said to me to seek my God, and my heart responded, your face I will seek. And I think that's transcendent. Um, I think that's the embodiment of the new relationship. Right. Yes, Carol. is big. Right, very good. The rear view is small. The windshield is big. Seek that destination. Yes, ma'am. Um, in Deuteronomy, um, Moses was talking about um, the curses and the blessings. Yes. And um, in Deuteronomy 36, uh, says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And this is after he said, you're going to go out, you're going to be Doing exiled this thing. to the nations, but I'm going to bring you back. That's right. And then in Ezekiel, he talks about um, a new heart. A new heart. That's right. And so it's, it's always been about the heart. Absolutely. It's about the law. Absolutely. You, you've nailed it on the head. Hit the nail on the head. Okay, let's keep going. Very good points. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 23. Now the deeds, that is the works of the flesh, are evident, which are, get ready, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. There's a very major difference to be noted in these verses between what Paul says about the flesh and what he attributes to the spirit, to the flesh, flesh, he attaches the word deeds. It's literally in the Greek translated works. While to the spirit, he attaches the word fruit. These words are substantially different. Deeds, works, require energy, concentration, and deliberation, meaning forethought. And they produce weariness and exhaustion. Fruit, on the other hand, is an involuntary product that simply blossoms from the life flowing from the root through the branches. Now, while we may not always see it, make no mistake, a life of, ex of sin is exhausting. Even trying to, quote, live respectably in a lifestyle that only appears righteous is exhausting. This is because the flesh is doing the work. The product of that work, whether it looks like righteousness or wickedness, is always the flesh. 
And most importantly, it is not of faith. And Paul tells us what he, what he knows to be true about faith uh, in Romans chapter 14, where he's again referring to another aspect of legalism. And he says, because he who doubts is condemned if he eats, but his, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, Liggy brought this up a couple of weeks ago. Uh, sometimes that there is a lot of confusion between what is good and what is righteous. The confusion results from mixing the definitions of words. Sometimes we think that sin and evil are synonyms and that good and righteous are also synonyms. And this is not always the case. For instance, righteousness is good, but not all that is good is righteous. Now we understand that righteousness is always a work, a product, or a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But many good things can be done in and by the flesh. And God's Word clearly tells us that even good things that are a product of the flesh are not righteous. One of the most illuminating scriptures on this is found in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. Where the, Lord, where the prophet says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Likewise, evil is sin, but not all sin could be called evil. Sin is the product of the flesh, as we've seen, even if it appears good. Paul gives us further insight into the relationship of the flesh in regard to God in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So let's shift our attention just a little bit to something more positive. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, it lifts us above the law. And I'm not speaking about politicians here. Now we know that the law was given to reveal the nature of the flesh and to judge it. On the other hand, God's Spirit is holy and there is no law against His behavior. In fact, if you were just looking at two people from the outside, one saved, and one lost, the major difference is not clearly visible. But the major difference is what's indwelling them, whether there is an indwelling Holy, Spirit's, Holy Spirit or an absence of Him. But only the saved person can or is able to display the fruit of the Spirit. Any comments there? Okay, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, this is the last uh, three verses in Galatians. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh <clears throat> is an astounding statement for Paul to make and for us to believe. But believing is what faith is all about. Believing God as Abraham did is what God counts as righteousness. Not only is righteousness imputed to our account when we believe, but that faith should translate into observable righteous action in us. 
what we are to grasp by faith in these verses is that if we belong to Christ, we have crucified the flesh, our flesh. And what Paul says here is true of all believers. Now notice what Paul did not say. He did not say those who belong to Christ must crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. What Paul has written is past tense. It is something that has been done and is finished. Paul is merely explaining to Christians what God believes about them, about us. Listen, God sees what is true, and He relates that truth to us through His Word. The situation for the Galatians was that they were letting themselves be encumbered with the demands of the law. And Paul's words here are not meant to add to their burden, but to deliver them from it. Their flesh was not to be their master, demanding that they fulfill its carnal lusts. Neither was the law, demanding that it fulfill its requirements. If the Galatians allowed those two, the flesh and the law, would show themselves to be an implacable team of taskmasters to whom no one is equal. But Paul's good news was that all who are in Christ have already crucified the flesh. When? When by faith we receive the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ as our own. Why? And listen very closely because this is very important. Because God the Father witnessed that event. He saw them and all who would believe crucified in Christ there at Calvary. And he is not about to forget it even if we fail to grasp how thoroughly we've been delivered. And moreover, through Christ's resurrection, believers passed from death to life, and God saw that as well. We should trust Him. What He saw is fact, and what He says is true. So God sees as finished what we can only see by faith. And when we finally do understand what God sees, we should experience change in our attitude toward the flesh's passions and desires. No one has to tell a born-again believer that they're going to experience conflict between the flesh that they still inhabit and the spirit that inhabits them. However, before salvation, a person has no choice of whom they must serve. But for the believer, the spirit of God living in us makes his choice available to us. And consequently, believers have the power his very power to walk in His Spirit. Therefore, there is no longer, no longer the need, Paul tells us here in this verse, to be boastful, to challenge one another, or to envy one another. Any thoughts or comments before we end? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Great. Okay, well, let's, then we, we have one chapter left, and I think we'll likely finish next week. So, uh, Jim, will you close us in prayer?